As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 81 is Lindsay Murray, who releases albums under the band name Gretchen's Wheel. She's released four albums and an EP since 2015. You're currently listening to Total Loss from her first album, Fragile State, co-written by Ken Stringfellow from the Posies, one of my previous guests. We're going to be largely focusing today on her most recent album, Black Box Theory from 2018. We'll discuss Untethered, Tatiana, then we'll dip back to the previous album 2017's Sad Scientist for the song Save the Day, and we'll conclude by listening to another song from the new album, Plans. For more information, please look for Gretchen'sWheel.com. For more information about this podcast, visit NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And to support what we're doing, please go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic to set up a contribution. I will have played a little bit of Total Loss, the sort of a title track from Fragile right. State, just because it says Fragile yeah. State in it, from your first album. But first album, 2015. I mean, 2015 is when my last album came out. Oh, so right. I feel very shamed. You've had a very good work ethic, four albums and an acoustic EP just since 2015. And this first one you said was actually the whole album was produced by Ken Stringfellow from the Posies we've had on the show before. And that song in particular was co-written by him. How did you even get his attention given that you had not had to release before? Can you give us the quick story here of the first album? Yeah, actually, I just approached him on Twitter. I don't know how I ever got the nerve to do it. I guess, you know, now it seems like no big deal. But at the time it was like, oh, I've never actually tried to send anybody. I had recorded a cover of a Posey song from their album Blood Candy called For the Ashes. And mm. I had just finished recording that, like, I don't know, a few weeks before. And I got the nerve to just send him a link to it on Twitter. And he was like, this is awesome. And I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, okay. So that actually sort of started me down the path toward even thinking of recording my own music. Because before that, you know, I was only recording just for fun. I was recording covers for fun. And I really wasn't even intending to share them very much. And I had no plans to record my own original music. I'd written music before, like most of the songs on Fragile State were actually written a long time before I ever recorded them. Like a decade before? You're, what, 34 or something when you're starting the first album, is that right? Or so somewhere in that? That's right, yeah. You know, one of them, I think I might have been 17. That's One More Mile. When I wrote One More Mile, I was, I think I was 17. It was somewhere around 17, 18. And many of the others were written between the ages of like 19, 20. And when I revisited them to record Fragile State, I 
did revise them pretty heavily. Like I didn't just record them the way I had written them back then. I was like, you know, some of these lyrics are pretty lame. Let's fix that. You know, I changed some of them, not a lot musically, but some, but mostly it was lyrical revisions. Ken's encouragement was the reason that I went ahead and decided to go ahead and keep recording, really. So had you just been playing on your own? I mean, were you in a live unit at some point in college or anything? No, I'd never been in a band and I'd barely done anything live. I maybe sung live a few times. I'd done some open mics when I was in college and I had done some recording on my own, you know, just home. I've been recording since I was 14, 15, just on a four track cassette recorder. So I learned how to do some of that stuff from a pretty early age, but I just kind of abandoned music for a really long time, like after college, between the end of college and I guess I was maybe like 33 when I first started thinking of picking up a guitar again. Like I just didn't play it and definitely didn't write. The reason that I recorded the Posies cover and some of the other covers that I started doing around that time was because it was discovering their music that inspired me to want to record again. So it was almost like a tribute in a way. It was like, you know, this is the reason I felt like actually picking up a guitar and learning more about home recording in the digital realm with GarageBand and then later Logic Pro. It's a tried and true method that Posies used it themselves. Like the reason they got sucked into Big Star was because they recorded a really good cover of a, a well, Chris Bell solo song, but essentially a Big Star song. And that was, you know, whoever it was that made the decision. If you can get the tone just right, uh, if you can impress the folks that were involved in the original recording, that's the only addition you need, that I care enough about you to have covered your song, and I did it really well. It was very much a tribute, and even at the time when I was recording it, it was like, I don't know that anybody else on earth is ever even going to hear this. And I, I recorded, I guess, I don't know, three or four covers around that time, and it was just, I let my husband hear them, let my mom hear them, and then it was like, well, you know, I guess I could put them on YouTube. You know, that's what everybody else is doing, and then... <laughs> You know, just a black screen. It wasn't actually a video. It was like just the audio uploaded to YouTube. But that was kind of what led to me sharing it and thinking of doing more. All right. So now we're four albums later. We're going to get to Black Box Theory, the brand new album. We were waiting to do this interview until this was about to come out. And here it is. The first song we're going to hear is Untethered. Your recording methods for these have been pretty consistent, right? That you record your parts the guitars are, in, in this case, actually adding bass for this album on your own and then send it out to somebody else to add drums, do the mixing, do all the, the final engineering. But, you know, you've got your multi-track thing to get the vocals and all the layering of the guitars and the vocal tracks first. In some cases, I've been a little bit more hands-off. Like, there are a few songs that, on the first album and on the third album, where I just basically recorded super basic stuff, just like the acoustic guitar rhythm track and the lead vocal and the backing vocals and then everything else was done by somebody else that happened a few times but I usually am not like that I usually like to control more aspects of it but when I was working with Ken on the first album yeah I wanted to let him I wanted to give him room to do a lot of stuff but yeah on Black Box Theory is the first album that I've done quite this much on every song consistently playing bass like you said and everything else. Nick Bertling, the drummer and the guy that mixed it, also played like a few other parts. Like in Untethered, he added an extra layer of guitar in the bridge and instrumental break. When that comes in, there's like an extra little heavy guitar that comes in that that was his idea to add. And that synth intro that kind of swells at the beginning right before the drums start, he added that too, which is 
really awesome. You know, he really had a hand in making that song what it is. All right. Can you give us a quick thematic overview of the short intro to the song before we played it in full and then we'll talk about the details? This song was one that I originally had envisioned as an album closer, very mellow and sort of a nice soft way to end the album. But once I sent all my tracks to Nick to add the drums, he sort of envisioned it as a heavier album opener. And I'm so glad that he did that because the way it turned out, it's just a million times better than the way I originally imagined it. The way that he mixed it, making the guitars sound heavier and the drums are much more powerful. So that's how it ended up the way that it is. I have Nick to thank for that. It was something nice But the details were gone when you from the table you'll take what you can get now carrying a heavy truth so There's a video that I'll point people to where you were walking through, I believe, uh, the song Live Through You, where you were going through, here's how I record everything, here's how I layer things. And it seemed like, do most songs start as acoustic? Like even this one, even though it's so, like they got that electric intro? Yeah, actually, that's a thing that I do every single time I write a song. It's all, it's always acoustic guitar. I don't know why. It's just because it's just right there and all I got to do is grab it and spontaneously start coming up with ideas. I never 
write a song with electric, but on Black Box Theory, there's not an acoustic guitar anywhere on the album. Like I didn't actually record any acoustic guitar. So the songs all started in a sort of quiet, mellow way, and they ended up being what they are on the album with no acoustic at all. I nearly made Untethered that way. I nearly, let's use acoustic on that one, just one song, you know, but then once I got into it, I was like, you know, it doesn't need it. It's fine without it. It was a first for me. I usually do always leave in an acoustic rhythm guitar track. Well, almost always, but it was just kind of an experiment. Let's see how it turns out when you kind of skip that step of recording. <laughs> so does that mean like this intro, these two note, do de do de do do like that you're actually doing that on acoustic or that's, it sounds like a very electric-y part that where you're just playing chords and you came up with this riff and then take the chord away. The riff was part of the song originally. Well, you know, maybe when I was still just kind of playing around with it, it was a full chord. But like definitely as I was developing the song, before I ever got to electric guitar, it became that riff exactly. And so much of the song seems like it's a story of where are the hiccups going to be? So the entire chorus, in trouble again, that it's all these offbeats. And just doing that in the intro, in the main riff, it sort of sets up you know, as if the hiccup is the theme. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. The kind of thing like you're talking about is something I struggle with in songwriting a lot because I find myself being inconsistent, like, you know, doing the offbeat saying, you know, I'll do it one time, but then the next time I play it, you know, I didn't do it the same way this time. I was playing it on the beat instead of off the beat. You know, like, I got to figure this out before I start recording. It will be impossible to play bass to or drums to if I just put all these inconsistencies in there. That was just one of those things that I realized as I was over the course of the last four albums. Like, I need to really pay attention to those kinds of details and incorporate them into the song early and get that stuff figured out rather than waiting until the day that I'm recording and because, you know, then it becomes more stressful and more room for error. It goes into what do you consider the song? That some songs are just, it's really just the chords and the lyrics. And if I, I've handed you the sheet with the chords and the lyrics, that's it. But this song, like maybe it starts like that, but as you play it more, then you get these little articulations and that becomes part of the song. Like that has to be in there. And if I was guiding a band, they would have to follow me on that or at least acknowledge that it was going on or it wouldn't be the same song. If you handed it to somebody else and they did a cover and they left all those out, it's like, it's not really the same song. On this one, especially on this album, I wanted to devote a certain amount of time just purely to writing before I ever even started recording because I wanted the songs to sit and marinate for a long time before, you know, because I am prone to recording something and then regretting it later. Like, oh, I should have spent more time on that. I really should have, you know, I should have revised that lyric or I wish I'd done this there. So I tried to eliminate a lot of that by forcing myself to spend months writing without starting the recording process. Like, don't start recording anything until you've written at least like 80% of the album, which was not what I wanted to do. I wanted like, I'm finished with this song. Let's record it right now. I just tried to change my process a little bit. And I'm so glad I did because many songs went through several revisions and I'm much happier with them now than the, the way they were at the beginning. And if I'd recorded them that way, I'd be regretting it today. <laughs> so can you say something about the process that these lyrics went through? They don't seem super unified, like as if you had to have just sat down and write, written them all in one stretch. Like it definitely seems like this verse could have come a month after this verse. It's not necessarily, is that how this worked? Yeah, that's exactly how I write everything. Rarely ever do I get the lyrics all in one sitting because lyrics accumulate over time. For me, I do like a lot of other people. I 
keep notes in my phone. And whenever an idea comes to mind, I just grab my phone and put, it could just be like one word. Like in the case of untethered, that's what happened. Like the word untethered just popped in my head one day. And I was like, I really should use that in a song somehow. <laughs> and I just put the word in there. And then it just built up like little snippets of things that seemed unified in some way. You know, I, mean, I know that the sections do kind of all sort of take on a different topic in a way, but they all sort of were unified in a way, in my mind anyway. I don't know how obvious it is, but. Sure emotionally unified. But it probably took weeks. I wouldn't say months for that one because that one was toward the end of the writing process for the album. And I was kind of starting to get a little antsy because it was like, I only had eight songs written and I was like, I need to, I want 10 on this album, you know, and I'm kind of getting anxious to start recording. So let's, (laughs) so Untethered was actually, it might've been the last one that I finished completely writing. So it, it wouldn't have had the chance to grow like some of the other ones did. But every song is always just sort of a hodgepodge of different ideas that accumulated over time. You got some really interesting articulations in here. Little acts of defiance, words you throw in the abyss. This, why? <laughs> why? It's really cool. Um, hmm. You know, I think it's because lots of times, like I write the lyrics, like I was just saying, I write the lyrics well before I ever even think about the music. I mean, it's not that I'm not thinking about the mood of the song and what type of song it's going to be. But like, I have no idea what the melody is going to be or what the chords are going to be or anything until I actually pick up a guitar later. Like, I d- They don't come to me together in the same kind of inspiration. I think I'm using different parts of my brain for the different aspects of lyrics or something totally different. And then when it's timed, like, let's make this into a song today. Okay. Then I start thinking of it differently. And I will throw everything out if I have to. If it's not working musically, I will try to come up with something entirely different. So sometimes I do come up with new lyrics while I'm writing the music, but to make it fit the music better. But that situation you're talking about was probably because the melody occurred to me and these are the lyrics that I had already sort of designated. Like, what's a way that I can make that number of syllables fit? You know, (laughs) like, I don't know. It's just trial and error. Lots of my songs go through many phases of like different articulations. Like you say, like sometimes that happens in the process of recording. I'll be recording it the way that I've been thinking of it for two months and like, you know, wow, today when I'm actually recording this vocal line, it doesn't feel right. So come up with something else. (laughs) I like that because it's sort of like you're malfunctioning for a second. Where do you throw, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It kind of leaves you on this edge. Like, where's this going to (laughs) go? And yeah, on the edge of the abyss. Your chord progressions are really interesting just in in all the songs. And I, I was trying to think, like, does she just know a lot of music theory? But actually sitting down and kind of charting them out, it seems more that it's how guitar players tend to write chords, especially sort of bar chord kind of guitar players, where just try putting your hand it, in a yeah, different place. Yeah. It's not necessarily, you know. That, that's that, Everything was an accident. You know, very rarely do I have any theory behind <laughs> it. Like, you know, I mean, I know a little music theory, but like, I don't know what the chords are in some of the songs. Like, if you were to ask me, like, what key is untethered in, I wouldn't be able to tell you right now because A, I use a capo and that kind of throws it off. But like, I don't really know. If I really sat down and thought about it, I'd be able to figure it out eventually. But it's just based off of a riff, you know, and there's kind of an odd chord or two in there. And I just go where it feels right. And it doesn't even occur to me to, because I'm not having to deal with a band, for one thing. If I was having to describe something to other band members or send something to them, like, you're going to play on this song, you know, it's in this key and blah, blah, blah. But since I don't have to worry about that, you know, I just have to keep it all in my brain. <laughs> it would be good to have a record because I'll probably forget some of these songs someday. And that would be very sad because <laughs> nobody else knows, at least on this album. Even just in the chorus, Desperate Measures goes from C minor to 
F sharp. So you're not doing a fifth C minor to, to G. It's sinking down. So it has this ominous, this v- little chromatic oh, okay, feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, I think when I originally wrote it, I didn't use a capo. And, you know, this is coming back to me now. And I had done the chord progression differently, like different shapes, different areas of the neck, I think. And something was not working. Like it was working in one way, but it wasn't working in another way. And I don't remember what it was now. And I was like, well, maybe I can solve this problem if I use the capo and still be able to make the song feel the same. And it, and it worked out, but like there was some sort of shift that happened. I don't remember what chord it was. It wasn't sounding right. You know, and I was, I was trying to solve a problem by, I believe the capo goes on the third fret in that song. But that chord progression you're talking about, that going to that chord was like what the whole song is sort of building up to that moment for me. Cause like, you know, now's where it gets interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then the bridge, you were mentioning that it was really in the mixing phase that sort of the overall shape of the song came together in terms of let's, add the extra giant guitar on top because it's not like it really goes that far. Otherwise it's not like, you know, it's not like it changes tempo and it doesn't move to a fundamentally different thing. It's kind of, it's, it's another variation of what you've had before until you get to the pretty soon you won't move at all. And this, I guess it's like you're taking us through the whole, almost it's the instrumental break at the end of the chorus, but you're just still singing over it. Instead of putting a little guitar solo in there right away, just having the vocal fill up that space. I thought that was a really cool. Part of it was the idea that I'd originally had the song was going to be kind of mellow and empty in a way. Like that was my original idea for the song because this album was going to just kind of end on this somber note that, you know, that I didn't write and play a guitar solo for that part. Like, like if it had, if I had maybe known what it was going to happen later, maybe I would have, yeah, this is the time for the big, crazy guitar solo. I'm not capable of playing a big, crazy guitar solo, but, you know, my version of one, I guess. And so it wasn't there. But then, you know, it ended up, I don't think it really needed it. I was pretty pleased with how the vocal serving that purpose. It's just, there's like a heavy, aggressive sound there, but my vocal just sort of gives it maybe a little bit of a softer, softer feel. I don't like a combination of contrasts, I guess. The softness and the hardness. <laughs> I have to interject. My drummer just happened to bring up in another context when we were talking about guitar solos, the Twisted Sisters, You're Not Gonna Take It. That it's, you know, a huge rock song, but the guitar solo is wah, 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 wah. It, like it's playing, just playing the melody. <laughs> you don't have to flash all over the place. Like it still says pretty high energy doing something pretty minimalist, which seems to be your general approach when you're doing a guitar solo here. It's do something melodic to fill the space, do a riff, and it doesn't have to spiral. It wouldn't help. It already has enough energy from the combined force of the band. Right, yeah. I love guitar solos that sort of mimic the lead vocal melody. Like, it just kind of gives it a theme that's consistent throughout the song. And sometimes I do it because I didn't think of any better idea. And other times it was because this is just what needs to happen here. It's what suits the song. Another textural thing, you got these synths, like on the chorus, where it's just... Either it's on the beat or it's answering the beat, you know, on the three of the measure, you know, something very simple just to add some texture. The kind of thing that works really well in hard rock is very hard to get like a keyboardist to play live with you and, and do only that kind of stuff. 
I think I remember debating over that a little bit because when it comes to any keyboard instrument, when I record, I'm actually just sitting at the computer for that. I use the musical typing or I think it's called musical typing in Logic. I don't use the actual digital piano that I've got behind me. I don't hook it up. I used to, but not anymore. I'm just too lazy, I guess, to actually go through the whole MIDI thing or whatever. But so I'm just sitting here on the you know, QWERTYASDF, like playing these ideas out. And most of the time, I don't have the sound chosen yet, you know, because you can apply any sort of virtual instrument in Logic. I probably went through, because my default is like Mellotron. Let's use Mellotron every time. You know, I probably had a Mellotron on that and the note would have just sustained. You know, rather than being like a quick ping, you know, it would have just probably overpowering, but I probably went through four or five different sounds and then decided to, yeah, you know, let's not make this over the top. Let's make it something more subtle. I go through that every time. Every time there's a keyboard part in a song, like, let's try Mellotron first and, and then let's move on to something else. Well, speaking of, let's move to Tatiana, which starts with Set of Mellotron strings at the beginning there. <laughs> it sounds like it, but that was actually like regular strings, but then they were just totally destroyed. Like I tried to make it sound like it was a vinyl record. So I used that vinyl plugin. And then of course in the mixing, Nick actually did more to it to make it even more convincingly old and vinyl-y. But it was not a Mellotron for once. <laughs> Any other introductory words about what Tatiana is about, how this is going to be different than the first song here? Mostly in a lyrical sense, because this one was not really inspired by a personal experience. This is about a fictional character in the opera Eugene Onegin. So that's who Tatiana is. Ah. So that's what makes this one much different from anything else I've ever written is that the character in the song is not me. It is a fictional character. Terrible dreamer Or so 
this is even a more catchy, hummable chorus. The mix in this of it's a big, sludgy, kind of heavy metal song, but your vocals are maybe, I don't know, I'm thinking Cocteau Twins or something, you know, just the fact that it's harmonized female vocals that sound nice, that are not metal, <laughs> but yet sitting on this big soup of distortion. That's one of the things I like to do. Like, that's one of my favorite, like, like we we're talking about contrast earlier. I like the, the heaviness of the song with, I really only know how to sing well, maybe two ways, but <laughs> the one way that I normally sing on my records, it just contrasts with these heavy, grungy guitars, and I sort of like that that mixture. And a sing-song, I mean, you were saying this is like referring to, well, is it an opera? What is the source material? Yeah, it's a Tchaikovsky opera, but it would, that itself, the libretto from that is a Pushkin novel, it just called Eugene Onyegin, ah. yeah, and it's in Russian. I'm a fan of opera. I'm not a fan of all opera, but I'm definitely a fan of this opera in particular. And I was watching it on YouTube one day, and this was in the initial stages of thinking, I think I want to make another album now. And I was in the middle of watching it, and the opera, just the story and the music, just, I don't know, it just affects me in a pretty strong way. I think I paused the opera. It was on my phone. I was watching YouTube on my phone. And I switched over to the Notes app because... It was getting to the scene where she's about to write the letter that's referred to in the song. And I just was overcome with sympathy for the character. And I was like, oh, just don't write that letter. You know, you're going to be so much better off if you don't write the letter. <laughs> I just felt like writing a song about it. And there was just something sort of intriguing about it because I'd never written a song inspired by that kind of thing before. I was like, I should explore this idea. So I think I wrote the whole chorus before I ever even went back and finished watching the opera. <laughs> Is the tonality that you're choosing here? Because it's got, you know, it's a minor key. It's got sort of a slightly gypsy flavor just in terms of those kind of progressions. Like, was that something that you had in mind because of the source material or that's just what you stumbled on? When it you was definitely guitar? inspired musically by the opera. If th There are some little melodic parts that are kind of mirrored in it wasn't like a direct lifting of it from the opera, but there are just some portions of it. And if anybody's a fan of the opera, I'm familiar with it, they might recognize them. But I didn't want to make it like, you know, I'm just going to sample it. You know, it wasn't going to be like that. But that minor major shift that happens, or I guess it's major minor, is something that you hear. There's there's an aria, and I will butcher Russian, so I'm not going to say it. But there's an aria, Linsky's aria, that has this melodic line in it that, it's just so, so, so good. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. it. I tried to sort of suggest it a little bit by part of the melody in Tatiana. And I would probably have to put them side by side again and listen and be like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. And of course, the choice of using the strings at the beginning, that was, you know, it's inspired by an opera. Let's do something kind of mildly operatic. So that's where that idea came from. Okay. So that was not something that was added way after the fact to sort of, we just need something instead of just starting it with the big hit and going. That was from the very beginning. You you planned to do this dramatic... Yeah, it was in my mind. Like, I was playing that part on guitar but as in the writing process. Well, not like the actual melody, but the chords behind the melody there. And I would just sort of sing that melody while I would be playing it. And like, how am I going to handle this when I record it? You know, it probably should have strings in it somewhere, but I didn't want it to be corny. Like, I just didn't want the song to sound... You know, because sometimes strings sound... I don't know, maudlin or whatever, but let's just set that idea to the side for now. And then when it comes time to record, try it. And if it doesn't work, just forget it, you know. And then luckily, it, I think it worked, you know, by making them sound sort of far away and old and distorted and like it pops and crackles of vinyl added, which is cool because I can actually listen to it on vinyl now. And it's like, 
you know, it sounds very authentic. <laughs> it's not 20 year old covered with the crust vinyl. It's not- it's fresh vinyl straight from the pressing plant. <laughs> <laughs> I really like your harmonies in the, the ooze parts that it's sort of Gregorian almost is it parallel fifths or so- it's just something that's a little wider than you would expect, I guess. Oh, yeah, I love doing stuff like that. You know, the the lower one is actually the part that came early on in the songwriting. Like I was already doing that low ooh part, like as I was writing the song. And then the high one just came in as I was recording. I was like, oh, I should add another. And then I think you can hear the high one better in the recording. I think it was mixed a little louder than the, the lower one. So it seems like that's the primary one. But in my mind, like the melody is the the lower one. But I sort of, I like the way that the mix ended up anyway, you know, but in, it's funny because in my mind, I still think of that lower one as being the focus, just because that's what I'm used to hearing. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what to make of these transitions. I mean, I understand, you know, you got in the major key for the verses, you're in the minor key, the more, what I was saying, gypsy <laughs> sound for the chorus. Although the fact that it's still kind of a power pop thing, you know, and a very catchy chorus with that gives it a nice mixture of things. But then these transition chords that you've got, Like the thing that defines it to me is just the sound of the guitar that you chose, the sliding between. I'm not sure like what emotionally I'm supposed to be feeling. You know, when it comes to guitar sounds, I completely record in the box. You know, I don't mic an amp and that makes me feel a little bit not quite legitimate, I guess. But it's just what I'm accustomed to. And I love having unlimited options basically to choose the guitar sound. I've thought many times I should try to do it the real way, you know, the like be a real engineer instead of just somebody who's pressing buttons in Logic Pro, you know, but I'm pretty satisfied with how they turned out, you know, in the end. And a lot of that was probably some of the mixing, you know, he might be reamping some of them. I'm not even sure. We, It's kind of all wizardry to me. I don't really know what all is because I'm horrible at mixing. Like, I don't, I don't think my mixes sound great at all. So when that mix came back to me, when Tatiana's mix came back to me, I was like, wow, this sounds so much better. Like I knew that it was going really well, or it seemed to be, in my rough mix, I was like, this is actually sounding pretty good for a rough mix for one of mine. But then when it came back from Nick, I think this is my favorite song on the album. You know, I go through phases with nearly every song being my favorite song on the album. But yeah, the the guitar sound, I did want this one to be maybe the most power pop sounding song on the album because there was just something almost, again, about contrasts. Like, I'm going to make this pretty strictly power pop. I guess I don't know if anything I do is strictly traditional power pop, but like the idea that it was inspired by opera, but the song ended up being, you know, this kind of grungy power pop. Well, there's sort of too many chords. I mean, I can see where you're getting this from the Posies being a major influence because they also put a lot of interesting changes that it's not like power pop is normally thought of if you're really getting back to what Bay City Rollers or something like there's nothing. It's all, you know, one, four, five. It's catchy, but there's none of these major to minor sudden transitions or the hiccups or the, you know, the other subtleties that you got going on here. Is it possible in the fake amp world to... Like, is there a thing that lets you artificially create feedback? Like, that's one kind of thing that I would often hear in a big grunge thing is like, you know, going into the loud part, maybe you have amp feedback coming in as a way of doing the swelling. And you've got swelling on both these songs to get into the loud parts. 
but that's done some other way, you know, reverse reverb, I don't know what. Yeah, like I have no idea how to do I wish I did. I wish I knew how to get the <laughs> feedback thing, you know, but the little touches like that that happen in the mixing phase, you know, there's a part of me that wants to know the secrets so I can do it. But also there's a part of me that's like, you know, I'm okay with just letting the, the mixing guy handle it. You're paying him. That's See, I've done the same thing where I record by myself and then go into a studio and have them mix it, which I like to have them do like the first three-fourths of it by themselves. But then I want to be there for the last part of it because I'm going to have really definite opinions on exactly how I want those two backing vocals <laughs> against each other or some other thing rhythmically that isn't quite fixed. And he, uh, But then also just to ask a crap load of questions to try to, not that I necessarily remember and can apply these later, but like, what effect are you doing there? What, did you totally remove my snare drum and add something else? What What's going on here? Yeah, sometimes I ask questions like that, but most of the time, you know, it's kind of a collaborative process throughout. I'm never in person when it's being mixed. You know, it's all on online. Like Nick lives in Chicago, so everything we did was long distance. So I would receive like the drum mix, like the rough mix with drums added or first pass at a mix. And it would be this big surprise every time I would get a file from him. I'm like, oh, yay, I can't wait to hear it because I know it's going to be awesome. So how, how would you connect with him in the first place then if, the, if he's not someone local or, you know, that other folks that you know have used or... I don't remember exactly how we crossed paths, but I'm sure it probably had something to do with Facebook because that's how I run into everybody these days. You know, that's how I make all my music friends. But I think he heard either my first or my second album somehow. I don't know, just our mutual friends, I guess. And we got in touch that way and... He actually offered to play drums on my third album, and he played on, I think it ended up being three songs. I'd have to check the credits again. Two or three songs he played drums on. That was the first time I'd ever worked with him in the same way in long distance. I would send him a rough mix. He would play drums to it. Yeah, and he actually mixed one of the songs on the third album, too. But it went so well. It just went so well. We ended up working on the Arai EP after that, and then now this entire album was just exclusively working with Nick. Are you paying him by the hour for everything? I guess this is, or is this more of a producer collaborative? Per song, you know, and he's super enthused about the project, which everybody I've ever worked with has always, you know, had some enthusiasm for what we're doing. But it's just with Nick, it's like he's, he's just super dedicated to making sure that the end result is going to be great. And I love that, you know, and he's very easy to work with. He's like, if I have a suggestion about something or I want to, you know, let's redo this. It's been bugging me. I know I said it was fine yesterday, but today it started to bug me. I'm so sorry. Can you please go back? (laughs) And he's like, absolutely, which is awesome, you know. So when he has ideas to add things like to like that extra guitar in Untethered. And in fact, the entire way that the drums sound in Untethered was entirely him. Like, I didn't suggest anything about the drums. I had an entirely different idea about how the drums were going to sound in that song. And I even included it in the rough mix. And then when he tracked drums, he tried something completely different. And I was totally okay with it because it was a million times better than what I had. So it's very much a collaboration. And it's always gone really well. He's really great to work with. Well, speaking of the drum engineering playing a prominent role, let's move to the third song. So this is uh, Save the Day from the previous album, Sad Scientist, which was 2017? Yes, I had to think about it for a minute. Yeah, March 2017. Okay. 2017, right. <laughs> which has sort of more aggressively engineered in that it almost sounds like there's 
drum machine through part of it, though it's not. It's just drums that are with a lot more reverb on it and that are kind of far away. And then they can come in for the loud parts and then go back and it, quite a lot of dynamics in this song. Do you want to you say something about this project, how this was different in this song in particular before we hear it? Yeah, Sad Scientist was a lot different. It's almost like the other end of the spectrum from Black Box Theory because my initial idea for that album was to invite as many people as I possibly could to be involved with it. Initially, I wanted every song to have a whole different set of musicians, guest musicians, and a different person mixing it. But it didn't really work out that way because it was just way too hard to manage. And I didn't appreciate at the time until later how nice it is to have found people that you are really compatible with musically and you can communicate with. And every time you start working with a new person, you have to sort of reestablish like a you know, how is this going to go? You know, what are their expectations? You know, what do I need to, you know, when you have found someone who is a good fit, you just don't take that for granted <laughs> at all. So, you know, I mean, everybody I worked with on Sad Scientist was awesome. It was kind of stressful though. Like, how am I going to handle this? How am I, I going to sequence it? How am I going to schedule it? All these different people with different things going on. It ended up being a kind of bit off more than I could chew. So that's one major difference between that album and Black Box Theory because with Black Box Theory, it was just me and Nick. I don't even know how many people are on Sad Scientist, but it was a lot. <laughs> a lot for me anyway. It seemed like a lot. Well, only three on this particular song. So Nick still on drums and Andy Reid, who did the mixes. That's right. And I think Andy also played bass on Save the Day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nick played drums on it. And that was one that I had programmed a drum idea because the, the transitions and the, the contrast, like we talked about, the quiet, almost programmy part and then the big heavy drums coming in, that was part of the original idea and part of what I programmed. So okay. Nick was just sort of following instructions on that one, but of course, always adding his extra, you know, expertise to it.
Was it just because of the contrast with the other songs? Why pick this one? I got to say, this is not one of the ones that jumped out at me when I was listening to Sad Scientist. It's right in the middle of the album. It's a longer, slower one. There are plenty of sort of catchier things on this. I appreciate it now, hearing it a bunch of times. But It kind of stands out to me as being a song that sort of foreshadows, I guess, what I was going to want to be doing with the next album in a way. Like there's a feel to the song that it just kind of points in that direction, the whole loud, quiet contrast. I I feel like I was kind of starting to learn with that song more about the kind of album I really wanted to make. Not saying that Sad Science is not the album I wanted to make, but it was like, you know, this is the thing that I kind of want to just keep on doing. Like, there are some songs on Sad Scientist that I think now I would never do. Like, the album Closer, same song. It's got a very kind of almost folky, acoustic-y feel and I just don't think that that's something that nothing wrong with doing a folky acoustic song, but it just doesn't really represent like what I want Gretchen's wheel to sound like, you know, and I didn't really learn that until after I kind of went through that the whole process of every album I've made is a learning process of like, how am I going to start to really hone in on the sound that I wanted to make from the beginning? Um, how am I going to like get rid of these ideas that don't align with that and find the ways to focus in on the artist that I wanted to be, I guess is a way to put it. A lot of experimentation, <laughs> trial and error. A very dreamy tune, a lot of letting those those riffs 
just ring out. And then when you have the big block of vocals come in, you know, it just ends up being this extra rich wall of sound sort of thing and gives you a lot of room to do little subtle things, which I saw you play the music box. So those little silly noises that are going right from the beginning, right? That was actually obviously a, I'm not a real music box. It's a virtual instrument in Logic Pro. I don't know. I just, I really wanted there to be sort of like a creepy sound in that. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite bands is Failure. It's always been a mystery to me. Like, how do they make these slow, slow songs sound so heavy and menacing and otherworldly? You know, because every time I write a song that's super slow, it just sounds like a kind of a drag or whatever. And it was like that. So they were a big inspiration for this song. Like, let's do something that failure would do. <laughs> I don't know that it ended up that way, but I just wanted to put little, I don't know, moments of weirdness in there. And the chord progression is probably the most bizarre thing I've ever done. Like, it's just completely illogical. It was just like, let's just play a random chord here and see if I can find a way to connect that chord to this chord without it sounding like a train wreck. <laughs> a lot of the other details, you know, besides the music box, are things that looks like were added remotely. So, I mean, just the fact that the bass is noodling around so much, you know, adding so much of the moment-to-moment -moment interest in what's going on. But that was not even in, in your original conception, right? That you just send it out, let him do his thing. How much are you sort of messing with that even in the mix or manually? At that time... Bass was not something, well, I was hoping that I was going to get to play bass a little bit on Sad Scientist, but, you know, I was still just kind of learning what function that instrument should serve. You know, I was still kind of just, when I tried to play a bass part or compose a bass part, it wasn't serving the song in the best possible way. So I didn't even touch this song when it comes to bass. I was learning that lesson with other songs. Like, you know, maybe I should just chill and let better bass players take the reins. And that's what happened with, with Andy. He's a phenomenal bass player. And I had no input whatsoever on that. Just do what sounds good. I, I trust you. You know, and of course he, he mixed it as well. And, and was also doing these little portamento synth things, these little single note, you know. Did the credits say that he played a synth on that one? Yes. He played keyboards. Yeah. There's a few times that it helps to build between one section. In fact, let me just play this. So just that it already is moving there with the chord progression, but to add an extra little thing on the top to have more audible treble and just give it a, it's almost like the sine wave sound, that, that very open sound. Yeah, he added something, he was referring to it as a as a Doppler sound on that song. I think he called it, a, and I was like, wow, you know, it was one of those things because I'm the world's worst to miss minor details until maybe like the fourth time I've listened to something. Like, And he was like, I added this Doppler sound and I was like, okay, cool. And then, you know, several listens later, I finally start, it started to sink in how awesome it was. <laughs> and then I, I think I sent him a message and I was like, I love that thing that you did. And he's like, yeah, that's the thing I was telling you about that I added. I'm like, oh, oh okay, cool. Where it ends up resolving to something and then he just has a note that sustains but dances around a little that it adds to the the dreamy effect that you already have comparable effects like that with the big reverb and things uh or is there, there a delay on this as well i forget with the with the guitar oh man at this point i don't uh i don't remember what i would have done with that one and i didn't i didn't ask andy a lot about the mixing oh so so this might have even been him not you doing adding to the guitars it's very possible you know i, I do try to get the guitars in the state that I think that they're, they're going to be okay without needing any reamping, but sometimes they do need a little help to sound a little bit more authentic, I think. 
with somebody like Andy, he's a total pro. If he wants to change something about a guitar sound, that would be 100% fine with me. <laughs> it's just going to enhance it. You know, like I know he's not going to change the character of it entirely. It's just going to make it, what I had sound even better. I'm surprised given the way that it was made that it has such a unified produced feel that between the little things that you were adding and then the things that, and Nick following your directions on the drums and then add Andy adding all these things to create the final mix that it is this coherent thing that it is that you were able to set up. Okay. This is dreamy. It's spooky. Make it more so. <laughs> Just do more like that. It's because they're so good at what they are doing. You know what I mean? And they're, they're uh-huh. totally, we're all on the same team. We all want the song to turn out as good as it can possibly. And they're just totally awesome to work with, both of them. I don't know if we've talked about the meaning of too many of these lyrics on on all of them. I mean, all three of these songs are pretty depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) I tend to be inspired by depressing things. Like, I rarely ever feel like writing a song about something happy. And even if I do, it ends up taking a sad turn like the song Wish on Sad Scientist. Like it was initially inspired by having a really good day. And then of course in the end, the song ended up being like, you know, I have so few of these basically is what that one kind of refers to. That even Tatiana, even though it's about this other story, like it still has that thematic thing that I could have think like I thought besides the specifics like burning the letter and things, but just in general going too far. And that's how the untethered ends. Desperate measures got you in trouble again. Yeah. It came untethered to the, the reason it ends, you know, and the fourth song we're going to hear plans to any insult. I'll add plenty of injury. Leave it to me. You know, sort of, I screw up everything. It's just Charlie Brown sort of, uh, that's perfect. That's exactly what that, that song is. Just like all of my songs are very self directed, except for maybe Tatiana. Cause the person I'm talking to is Tatiana in that one, but sure. Something about me messing up something or <laughs> regretting something or having maybe some sort of failure or disappointment. Like that's usually a theme, a common thread that is running through nearly, I guess, probably all of my albums. Yeah. And plans, like you said, it's even more direct. It's even more like, why are you such an idiot? <laughs> like, why do you have to be the way that you are? Save the day. It's not all your fault. It's the human condition that life is rushing by. They say it goes faster the longer you live. I already watched my days that run through a sieve. Oh, I, th- I thought it was funny that they say it goes faster. It's like, the song is not going faster. The song, you know, it's almost that the song is a, itself a way of responding to how fast life is going. No, I'm just going to sit in this riff and I'm going to enjoy it and it's going to be dreamy. And that's, that's a good thought. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but yeah, we're talking about the speed of time and how you can't control it and it keeps on getting faster. And the song is like by far the slowest thing I've ever written. Like it's probably like 50 BPM or something like that. I don't know. Before we get introduced plans and be done, tell me, I saw that you had recorded between this album and the last one, you recorded a five song acoustic EP, but that's not the final version. You're going to take those songs and work them more? Is it what, What's going on with the next project? You know, I originally thought that was just going to be a standalone side project that I didn't even count as a proper release because in my mind, it was so far outside of what I usually do that 
I, I didn't even count it in the sequence. You know, that's why Black Box Theory is my fourth album. It's really my fourth full length album. And that's why I just say full length in there. So I don't have to count awry in there. But because it was like a free Bandcamp only release, I didn't put any kind of promotion behind it. I didn't release it on any other platforms or in the physical format or anything. The idea occurred to me is I was, I was so happy with how it turned out that I wanted to do it again. I thought if I could kind of get back to that same place again as a songwriter and write songs in that same way again, then I would do another set of five songs and make it a full-length album. I don't know if I'll change anything about the five that have already been recorded. Possibly I might, there are little things that, that maybe could be tweaked and I could talk to Nick about it who mixed that EP also and see if, he's, if there's anything he would like to tweak or try before giving it a, a proper full-length release. So if, if I stick with that idea, it'll be my fifth full-length album and I can stop worrying about whether to count it as number four anymore. <laughs> but it was a totally different writing style than what I usually do, at least the process of writing. Well, it seemed like it was just the first step. It just seemed recording-wise that you described that in your regular albums, you start with recording the acoustic and then you get rid of that because you've overlaid all these electrics that you were just do the first step and just leave it. <laughs> That it's not that they're... Yeah, essentially, yeah. right, yeah. There's a little more stuff on it than that, but it's not, it's just less done. I looked at it sort of like, um, these are just sort of demos in a way that I don't, I don't know, I can't really even envision how they would sound as a version of like what I would normally do, like a fuller production. I don't know, they just sound like the way they're supposed to sound, I think. But the writing process was so fast, like I wrote all five of them just within days and intentionally just trying to get to the finished product without a lot of editing and restraint. Like the first idea that came to mind, that's, you know, I, I didn't really tweak anything. Whereas with other albums, I spent a lot of time trying to get it right. Like, am I going to think this lyric is lame two months from now? With a riot, it was like, just do it. You know, just I want to do something spontaneous. Like there's a spontaneity to it that I would never allow on one of my other releases. I don't know. It was just an experiment. It was fun. Yeah. So if I can write songs like that again, if I can get there again, then, you know, I'll do it. And now that it's codified, that it's, you know, you've got the album version that even if there are things that about it that bug you that you might want to redo, it's harder than to let go and say, no, actually, I'm going to go treat these as the first pass and I'm going to do my normal thing over them and finish them. I'm surprised that that you don't get attached to your acoustic versions more often because that's I there's so many songs that I've started and I do an acoustic guitar and like, well, this is going to be all pianoed up and this is going to, you know, something else, but then I kind of like it this way. It's it's in my head now. Just leave it. Just overdub some stuff and now it's done. Like so they still end up being acoustic songs. I have hung on to some of my rough demos like straight to iPhone. So I can go back and listen to them sometimes. And I'm like, I'm so glad nobody else has heard these, <laughs> you know, because they're pretty rough. I mean, occasionally I'll let somebody hear the rough demos, but I know in the recording process, the, the character of the song is going to change a lot. Like it's just kind of inherently a folky sound when you're just playing an acoustic guitar. And I, I don't intend for my songs to sound that way at all. And it's something I kind of have to fight against because it's kind of almost happens in my voice. A lot of people hear, I guess, from my upbringing, being around country music a lot, they, you know, your voice sounds like they put Americana into my music because of the way my voice sounds. Like they want to use that tag. You know, your music is like a mixture of power pop and Americana. I'm like, really? Where? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. So I have to try to fight against that because I don't want it. I didn't know till today, listening to other interviews with you, that you have an accent while speaking. Like that's how much it didn't get into your singing voice as far as I was concerned listening oh, well. to all the... Oh, thank you. That's pretty cool. It's kind of a relief. I mean, I don't even hear it 
personally, but I mean, I guess when I go back and listen to this, I will probably be like, Oh, why <laughs> do I sound like that? But I think it's that like a rebellious part of me in that everybody wants to assume because I'm from a small town in middle Tennessee that obviously you're going to be a country music singer. And it's just like, no, I'm not. You know, I don't listen to it. I don't like it. You know, so like anytime somebody kind of wants to put that, even a hint of that label on my music, I'm like, I got to try harder next time. <laughs> I don't I guess I don't worry about it. You know, if they like it, then they can put whatever label they want on it. It's totally fine. I think there are way more venues for alt country than there are for, for power pop. I just, as far as. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably embrace it. <laughs> At least for a project, just throw it out there or a song. The relationship between rock and country is such a, a weird, it's only been in the last decade that I think I have a proper appreciation for country, whereas it was getting it through rock and roll, you know, when the Rolling Stones do a country song or when the, the Beatles, when they have Ringo sing a country song or something. And it's not very respectful. And it's, and so then, you know, there are plenty also in, Uncle Tupelo sort of uh, Wilco, you know, th- coming out of that. Well, Sunvolt is, you know, that is kind of this kind of music, but still is not afraid to have that sheen on it. Like a little twang or whatever. Like I love the Jayhawks. Like I, you know, exactly. that, I think that's a pretty good example. Yeah. I'm a big fan of theirs. And I love the fact that there are people that are doing that and they're not, I guess, afraid of the label. Like, like I just sort of, am, ugh, you know, like just kind of, I don't want to go there. Well, maybe when you're from Minnesota, it's a different thing <laughs> than because it's maybe, maybe so. But like one good example is Matthew Sweet, who I, has been my favorite artist from the beginning. Like he has a song like Winona on his album Girlfriend. And that's, you know, steel guitar. It's very kind of old country sounding, you know, and people just call him a power pop artist. And even though he throws songs like that in or used to on, on his albums, it was like, well, he's power pop and country, you know, like you didn't really hear that very much. And it was like, I like the fact that they're, is room for just having all kinds of stuff like that on an album and you not be labeled a certain way. But if I just stuck a song with a steel guitar on one of my albums, I just know (laughs) (laughs) I would have to worry about the label even more. And I love steel guitar. It's great. (laughs) Let's cleanse our palates from the thought of steel guitars by listening to our last song here, Plans, which is maybe my favorite song from Black Box Theory. And a lot of it actually is that drum riff that he gets going right away with the, the where the hi-hats sit, which then actually, when it gets to the chorus, I know he's switching and playing on toms, but I miss the hi-hats. Like, I want tambourine, you know, I want something to fill in that treble space. That's the only thing that bugs me because I like that intro so much. <laughs> it's awesome. I just, yeah, I'm so happy with how the drums turned out on that. That that was one of my, I mean, it's probably my favorite song on the album still, even, you know, I, I, that changes from day to day, but the drums were 100% Nick. Like, I had uh-huh. no idea on that one. I didn't give any direction. He just played it. And the first time I heard that, the rough mix back with the drums, I was like, oh, this is, that's, I don't know what you did, but that's just so awesome. I don't speak drum language. Like, I don't know. You know, I wouldn't even know how to describe. Like, I love the part where this does this. You know, just whatever that was, it was perfect. Thank you. You know, I appreciate whatever wizardry of drums that going on in this song. Any other introductory words about you know what this song is about and how it relates to the rest before we say goodbye here. Yeah, like, like we talked before about how it's just very self-directed about listing kind of almost all of my flaws in a song like I tend to do and sort of 
scolding myself about them. It's a therapeutic thing. Like I think that I'm going to get better if I acknowledge what my shortcomings are and write a song about it. And then, you know, I'll be able to do better next time. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you showing your flaws and it's such a perfect (laughs) little package. Yeah. Folks should go to Gretchen'sWheel.com to listen to the whole albums, get this new one, which will be out by the time this interview goes up. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. I really enjoy Lindsay's music. 
She is someone who I found through Facebook, through previous guests I'd had on. We got in touch, and I'm really glad that we did. Again, go to Gretchen'sWheel.com to learn more. And I hope if you've not already done so, you subscribe to this podcast at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. My next guest will be Byron Isaacs, who you may not know that name, but he is a major league bass player currently touring with the Lumineers. His longtime band was a New York gospel thing called Olabelle, featuring Amy Helm, that is Levon Helm of the band's daughter, and he also played and even wrote on some Levon Helm solo albums, as well as with many other people. I'm going to be talking to him about his debut solo album, so come back for that. I really hope that you like this enough to want these podcasts to continue being produced, and the best way to ensure that is to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Set yourself up with a small per-episode contribution if you are in the financial position to do so. I would also welcome your feedback, your guest suggestions, your suggestion of yourself as guest, perhaps. You can email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. But most of all, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintzemeyer signing off. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.